Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Laura Makin Isherwood. If you've paid any attention to the news coming out of Russia lately, you'll likely have heard of the Wagner Group. Thousands of men and some women who have signed up to become mercenaries supposedly contracted to fight for the Russian government. And it's not just in Ukraine that they've been credited with playing a significant part. The group has also reportedly held a presence in Libya since 2018 and in some African nations too. But while they might fight Putin's wars, what's very clear is that these warriors who are shrouded in a certain level of mystery have been taking some orders from another man, Yevgeny Prigozhin, a former close ally to Putin. And I say former for a reason, because over the last few weeks their relationship appears to have imploded after Prigozhin decided to launch what appeared to be some kind of coup that began and ended in less than 48 hours. An apparent deal has seemingly been struck and Prigozhin looks like he's been exiled to Belarus. Well, that's according to the Kremlin anyway. So what's the deal with the Wagner Group? Who funds them? How much of a threat do they pose to the Kremlin and also to global balance? And what is Prigozhin planning in Belarus? I'm joined in the bunker by Ben Dalton, Programme Manager of Future Frontlines at New America, where he's researching the changing nature of conflict. Ben, welcome to the bunker. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so let's start right at the beginning. Wagner. It really felt like this group first started registering in the psyche of the general public at the start of the invasion of Ukraine. And those headlines that were being put out around the world saying that President Putin was basically sending mercenaries into Ukraine in a bid to take control of key towns and cities so he could get a strategic advantage. So are these men, and as I said, some women, really as violent as the legend seems to suggest? Yes, I would say so. Virtually everywhere that Wagner forces have deployed or operated around the world, they have been associated with atrocities. And it's really become part of their self-image and their sort of self-created legend. Uh, you know, you may have noticed that one of the images or, or bits of iconography that they like to use is the sledgehammer. This is a direct reference to a videotaped torture murder of a uh, Syrian that took place in 2017 uh, named Hamdi Buta. And it's become a sort of preferred way of performing theatrical executions uh, within the group since then. They've been associated with massacres uh, in Africa, for instance, in Mali. Um, we know that they are associated with some widespread human rights violations, uh, atrocity crimes in Ukraine. So I would say, yes, they do live up to the reputation for exceptional brutality. I mean, it does sound pretty barbaric using those kinds of weapons, I suppose, that level of torture that they're imposing on people. And so who is Prigozhin then, their assumed leader? Yeah, so Prigozhin has had a, a very exceptional and, and strange career. Um, back in the 1980s, he's, he's from the city of St. Petersburg in Russia, um, he initially was a fairly promising athlete, but then seemed to get caught up in, in some street crime, uh, was sentenced to a, a rather lengthy prison term during the, the Soviet days and served, I believe, something like nine or 10 years of it. He came out just at the time that the Soviet Union was collapsing and started to express this rather strong entrepreneurial streak, starting out truly just with a, a essentially a hot dog stand. They're not actually hot dogs, they're sasiski, but you know, effectively a hot dog stand. But very quickly grew beyond that and showed that he had a knack for, for launching restaurants, created some of the more uh, sort of swanky restaurants in St. Petersburg, which then became some of the preferred uh, places for Putin, who at the time was the deputy mayor of the city to frequent with his friends. And by the, the early 2000s, Putin, by this point, he was president of Russia, he would entertain uh, foreign state leaders at Prigozhin's restaurants, including George W. Bush, the U.S. president at the time. 
from there, he expanded. He he created this company, Concord, uh, which does a lot of work in um, catering and logistics and provisioning and cleaning services. It, it, you know, it has its fingers in, in many, many different pies. Um, and his use to the Kremlin has always been that he's kind of like a Mr. Fix-It uh, when the Kremlin has some deniable task that they would like to have performed, then, you know, Prigozhin is, is there to do it. So he was, you know, infamously the the owner of the Internet Research Agency, this uh, troll factory out of St. Petersburg that attempted to intervene uh, or did intervene in the U.S. election in 2015, 2016. I mean, it's a bit of a, a bonkers CV, isn't it? To go from owning a hot dog stand to then running a troll factory and then become a warlord in Ukraine. Yeah. How does I, yes. one man do all of that? Yeah, well, he, he, I mean, it's clearly he's he's a very strong personality. He's very entrepreneurial. And um, yeah, the, the root of his success for a long time has been his Kremlin access. There's not really any sign that he's, you know, fr- was ever friends with Putin, but he has always been useful. And so then... How useful has he been? How vital has he been in terms of Russia being able to make moves into Ukraine? Like I said earlier, we'd heard about these newspaper reports very early on in the press that he was sent in to gain that strategic advantage in those towns that were putting up a bit of a fight. Yes. uh, The Wagner Group has been very core to Russia's war effort in Ukraine for the last year and a half. Uh, for the last year or so, they have been the only made, you know, Russian force that has been able to make significant territorial gains against Ukraine. Um, they were predominantly responsible for capturing the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. Uh, they captured the city of Solidar pretty close to there back in uh, January of this year. And, you know, there's differing explanations for why they have been relatively more successful than the regular Russian army. One of them is that, you know, they seem to be a little bit more agile, have a little bit of a more responsive command structure. But the other part of their success has been the widespread use of prison fighters. So for roughly half a year there, Prigozhin had access to Russia's prison system and was able to directly recruit out of them, uh, offering uh, six-month contracts to prisoners. And if they survived, they would be released back into the civilian population. And they used these guys as you know cannon fodder, throwing them into Ukrainian defensive positions uh, and endure just exceptional losses, you know, thousands and thousands of casualties. But the end result was that they were able to capture this, this uh, city. Now, for a while, the Kremlin denied their existence, denied that they were linked with President Putin, at least. But of course, I think what's happened over the last few weeks with Prigozhin and him coming out publicly and saying or accusing the defence minister of staging a missile attack on a Wagner camp in Ukraine has basically blown that out of the water. And Putin has had to admit that there are those links. So why do you think the Kremlin decided to deny that they were involved to start with? And what's this shift that we're seeing now? The plausible deniability has always been pretty thin if you if you really looked at it. As far back as, you know, the end of 2017, Putin was awarding uh, Wagner commanders for their role in uh, Russia's war in Syria. But yes, it's true that in the last couple of weeks, you've had Putin come right out and say, uh, yeah, we've been funding this group to the tune of, you know, a billion dollars. Um, you had the deputy head of Russia's military intelligence release a video where he referred to their long history of cooperation. And, uh, you know, Wagner, if you look back at its history, back to 2014, 2015, it, it really was a creation of Russia's uh, military intelligence and, and FSB agencies. 
At this point, we're at an inflection point in the relationship between Prigozhin and Wagner and the Russian state. And I think that accounts for some of the very frank um, admissions of just how close this relationship runs. I mean, it was astonishing to see those social media videos that Prigozhin was putting out over the last few weeks, basically calling out the Russian government and saying that they weren't offering up, you know, enough food, enough ammunition, things we've been hearing for a while, right? But this was the first time we've heard an ally directly accuse the Russian government of doing a bad job. Yes. Prigozhin has been remarkably savvy about using social media and specifically um, the social platform Telegram, uh, which has become kind of dominant, I would say, in the Russian-speaking sphere for uh, the latest and freshest information. And in a way that actually reminds me a little bit of Donald Trump, he's used uh, social media to speak directly to his base and cultivate a base within Russia quite successfully. So, you know, during the this very dramatic 24-hour period where they launched this, what is calling a mutiny within Russia, uh, Prigozhin was releasing voice memos and videos all throughout this process so that he could communicate directly uh, to the people who needed to hear from him. And the reason that he has felt able to launch these criticisms that, you know, virtually nobody else inside of Russia is able to do is because he felt that he, as the head of this organization that had made substantive military gains in Ukraine uniquely, and who had managed to attract actually quite a bit of public support for that, um, you know, he he felt that this provided a, a degree of, of protection and allowed him to voice criticisms that, again, nobody else in Russia could really get away with. And so do you think that protection actually exists? Because, of course, we saw that start of a march towards Moscow, Prigozhin claiming that he had 25,000 men coming with him. And then all of a sudden, we hear that there's this deal that's been done between Putin, Prigozhin, and facilitated by Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus. And now Prigozhin's off to Belarus, seemingly exiled. What is the state of play at the moment? Do we believe what is going on there? It is incredibly murky, I will say, and a lot of our sources of information are not extremely high quality. You can argue all day as to whether you should treat, you know, the Kremlin spokesperson Peskov's word as as being accurate. So we're working on a lot of rumors. Um, It does seem as though Prigozhin is in the process of relocating to Belarus. There's scattered reports that uh, abandoned military base in Belarus is being converted and refurbished for for Wagner's use in Belarus. Uh, One really big question is, so all of the Wagner fighters have seemingly been offered this deal. You know, this is what is being said officially, but again, we will see. Seemingly being offered this deal, uh, uh, basically they can either go into what is effectively like a quasi-exile in Belarus, or uh, they can sign contracts that would basically integrate Wagner into the the formal command structure of the Russian military. Uh, So a major question is to see just what percentage of the the Wagner fighters in Ukraine are going to choose to join Prigozhin in Belarus. And if they do join him in Belarus, is this not simply a repositioning of those men north of Ukraine, closer to Kyiv? Is that something that strategists are going to be looking at here, military strategists? Absolutely, yes. Um, This is definitely a strategic shift. However, I want to mention that Russia has already made pretty ample use of Belarus in its war effort in Ukraine. So the threat of sort of Russian forces moving on Ukraine from Belarus is not new, but having Wagner specifically, a considerable force of them, one presumes, is new.
You talk then about those Wagner troops being absorbed into the Russian military structure. Is there a certain element of danger there, seeing as we've experienced or witnessed them almost revolting against the Russian government, that they might do the same within the Russian military? How trustworthy can they be? Or do you think that the sort of Russian view is so strong and the command that the Russian army military commanders have is so strong that they're not at risk there? I think it's a very messy situation, potentially. So several factors here. One is that the Wagner fighters, the core, the, the people who participated in this mutiny, now have you know Russian blood on their hands, not just Russian blood, but the blood of Russian servicemen. Um, they ended up killing, I think it was 13 or possibly 15 uh, Russian pilots, shooting down something like seven aircraft during that 24-hour revolt. Um, that's not something that I think the, the everyday rank-and-file Russian soldier is going to forget soon. At the same time, it is true that Prigozhin has some sympathies, uh, especially at the lower and middle levels of, of the Russian military, who share his almost disgust <laughs> with the top levels of, of military command, which they, they view as feckless and inefficient and corrupt. An important thing here to remember is that the whole sort of spark for this revolt was this July 1st deadline that Prigozhin was facing to sign a contract that would have integrated the entirety of, of Wagner and Ukraine into the Russian command structure, uh, which would have effectively squeezed him out. And he he viewed this as an existential threat, um, so much so that he was willing to, t to take this incredibly risky move uh, to communicate you know, that this was not going to work for him. And that contract has not been signed, we don't think. Well, so Prokhorjian clearly will not. I think he, he he will ultimately end up in Belarus. Whether he's there physically right now as we speak is, is not 100% confirmed. But I think he will eventually end up there or at least have his base relocated there. And now it's it's down to the individual choice, apparently, of the fighters, whether to go with him or whether to essentially get folded into the Russian military. Let's talk a bit about social media now. I know that's been a focus of your own research. And Wagner have been using social media quite successfully, haven't they, as you said, to recruit. But also their following has absolutely exploded. Yes, that's right. So in the roughly year and a half uh, since Russia launched its full-scale invasion, the Wagner brand has just exploded. Um, they've always had their online spaces uh, on Telegram, on Contactia, which is the Russian social media network, or a Russian social media network. And they have used them very savvily. And as they have you know, had relative military success in Ukraine, as it's widely seen inside Russia, um, a bit of a sort of legend has grown up around them. And their old channels have grown by hundreds of thousands. There are fan pages and meme pages that uh, don't really have any actual connection to, to the Wagner command, but have hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, there's local groups that have sprung up in, in regions all across Russia. Um, and yeah, a lot of this serves a very practical purpose of helping to drive recruitment, which as of today is still going on inside of Russia. There's, you know, reports of, of journalists who are calling uh, Russian recruiting lines, um, or sorry, Wagner recruiting lines. And, uh, you know, everything seems to be proceeding as it was. They're still, they're still actively recruiting. So what is the process for recruitment then? You call a line and somebody gets you signed up and ready to go? 
Yes, there's there's videos out there if you're interested in seeing the actual process. But in essence, you call one of the, the Wagner recruitment lines and somebody answers and they say, we're going to send you some information. Please be sure to read it carefully. Buy a ticket. Uh, join us at our base in Molkino. Uh, be sure to keep your receipts because we will you know, reimburse you for the travel expenses. Uh, the group is incredibly hungry for bodies. So, you know, that, that recruitment structure is, is kind of all important. And who funds Wagner? We, you know, we've got this sum of money that comes from the Russian government now that seemingly has been put out into the open. But is social media also a tool for crowdfunding as well, given they're pushing this, almost glamorizing this this way of being, I suppose? Yes. I mean, the short answer to who funds Wagner is the Russian state. They've always been incredibly dependent on Russian financing, Russian logistics, um, Russian ammunition, etc. But, you know, they have plenty of other sources of revenue. Um, we have seen... Uh, the last year and a half, you know, solicitations for small dollar, uh, essentially crowdfunding for um, bits of gear that would be useful, things like night scopes and body armor. Uh, we've seen some use of cryptocurrency, Ethereum and Bitcoin for that, but also just regular bank transfers. And then from, from Wagner's global interests, uh, you know, one of the main ways that they accept payment for their activities in places like, you know, the Central African Republic or Sudan is that they gain access to extractive industries, um, mining concessions. So for instance, in Sudan, they have been extracting very large amounts of gold uh, from that country and shipping it to Abu Dhabi. It's thought that before this mutiny, as Putin wants to call it, there were around 50,000 Wagner fighters. Is that about right? All of these numbers are are very speculative. And if you trace their sources back, it's it's quite hard to, to actually find, you know, quality information. I, I have always thought that 50,000 was an exaggeration. Around the peak of Wagner's prisoner recruiting, um, so last winter, might have gotten to like 30, maybe 40,000. But again, these are complete estimates. And their numbers have definitely dwindled since they lost access to recruiting in prisons. Um, I know that Prigozhin claimed that 25,000 men joined him in his his march of justice in Russia. I think the actual number is is probably significantly smaller than that. So how much of a threat do you think that Wagner actually poses to the Kremlin now in its current form, which is basically Prigozhin in Belarus trying to work out how many men might follow him? And do you think that it could build in numbers again in the coming years? I don't think that Prigozhin's goal was ever really to oust Putin or to to overthrow the government. Um that's not to say that he couldn't have seen his way <laughs> to that outcome if things had played out differently, but I don't really think that was his primary goal. Um, and I don't think it's his primary goal now either. What does he want then? Well, I mean, his number one thing, which he he seems to have actually achieved for himself, was to re- retain effective control uh, of at least the, the command core of Wagner, which he sees as the root of his power, um, which is the same thing as protection, right? Without that, he's completely vulnerable. And does he not have a bounty on his head now? He has many bounties on his head. There's there's no shortage of people around the world who would like to see Prigozhin, you know, prosecuted in court or worse. It, it's also true that so part of this deal was that apparently the FSB dropped its criminal case against him uh, for you know incitement to to revolt. But that does not mean that you know he's immune to other charges that might crop up related to his activities in Russia. And of course, Belarus does extradite to Russia. So I think his his fate is 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 really far from clear. Do you think he poses more of a risk to internal Russian politics and state success than he does the sort of wider 
globe, the balance of power there, and particularly NATO and the Western nations? Wagner's presence around the world, and in particular in Africa, is not just, you know, a money-making opportunity for a private company. It is the tip of the spear for Russia's global ambitions and, and desire to be seen as, as a great power, as it was in the Soviet days. A very big open question for me at this point is how Russia is going to handle this. It's very hard for me to imagine that Prigozhin is going to be allowed to keep running such a strategically significant and important aspect of Russia's foreign policy. But, you know, if there is a transfer to either the regular Russian military uh, or to one of the many other private military companies that operate in Russia, it's unclear that that transfer is going to be, you know, seamless or smooth. I think it is a priority for Russia that it be seamless and smooth because they don't want to be seen as inconsistent partners um, or unable to fulfill the commitments that they have made to the countries where these these guys are operating. So what are you going to be looking for when you're researching now moving forward? Obviously, your focus point will have shifted completely in the last couple of weeks in terms of your understanding of how they were operating. So what are you going to be looking for? Yeah, the three biggest questions on my mind right now are what happens to the top command within Wagner? This is the group that Progression refers to as the Council of Commanders. And it's really, this is where the institutional knowledge, the legacy of the group, it's, you know, it's changed a lot since 2014, 2015 in many different instances, many different uh, incarnations, but it's that command structure that has been relatively consistent. I'm curious what happens to them, whether they will also, you know, join Prigozhin in Belarus, whether they will be prosecuted eventually by, uh, you know, Russian authorities. Uh, Another big question is, as I mentioned, just how successfully Russia will be able to integrate some aspect of Wagner fighters into the regular Russian military. And third, you know, what will become of these international interests that Wagner has? At this point, they they essentially are propping up the government in the Central African Republic, right? So potentially, if they are forced to withdraw, or if that transfer is messy, um, that could have very serious ramifications for for entire countries. Well, it certainly seems like anything could happen. And I'm sure that your work's going to get even more interesting in the coming weeks. Ben, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Well, how Russia's war in Ukraine continues, what the outcomes may be, or indeed where Prigozhin goes, is certainly unpredictable. And it feels like that chief isn't going to fade away quietly. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. I'm Laura Makinishawood, reporting from The Bunker. Hello, I'm Ross Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Laura Makin-Isherwood. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. 
with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>